Part Two of Queen of the Martian Catacombs by Lee Douglas Brackett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Two. There were many lights far below, tiny pinpricks of flame where torches burned in the streets beside the low canal, the thread of black water that was all that remained of a forgotten ocean. Stark had never been here before. Now he looked at the city that sprawled down the slope under the low moons and shivered, the primitive twitching of the nerves that an animal feels in the presence of death. For the streets where the torches flared were only a tiny part of Volcus. The life of the city had flowed downward from the cliff-tops, following the dropping level of the sea. Five cities, the oldest scarcely recognizable as a place of human habitation. Five harbors, the docks and quays still standing, half buried in the dust. Five ages of Martian history, browned on the topmost level with the ruined palace of the old pirate kings of Volcus. The towers still stood, broken but indomitable, and in the moonlight they had a sleeping look as though they dreamed of blue water and the sound of waves, and of tall ships coming in heavy with treasure. Stark picked his way slowly down the steep descent. There was something fascinating to him in the stone houses, roofless and silent in the night. The paving stones still showed the rutting of wheels, where carters had driven to the marketplace, and princes had gone by in gilded chariots. The quays were scarred where ships had lain against them, rising and falling with the tides. Stark's senses had developed in a strange school and the thin veneer of civilization he affected had not dulled to them. Now it seemed to him that the wind had the echoes of voices in it, and the smell of spices and fresh-spilled blood. He was not surprised when, in the last level above the living town, armed men came out of the shadows and stopped him. They were lean, dark men, very wiry and light of foot, and their faces were the faces of wolves. Not primitive wolves at all, but beasts of prey that had been civilized for so many thousands of years that they could afford to forget it. They were courteous, and Stark would not have cared to disobey their request. He gave his name. Delgon sent for me. The leader of the Valkysians nodded his narrow head. You're expected. His sharp eyes had taken in every feature of the Earthman, and Stark knew that his description had been memorized down to the last detail. Volcus guarded its doors with care. "'Ask in the city,' said the sentry. "'Anyone can direct you to the palace.' Stark nodded and went on, down through the long dead street in the moonlight and the silence. With shocking suddenness he was plunged into the streets of the living. It was very late now, but Volcus was awake and stirring. Seething, rather. The narrow twisting ways were crowded. The laughter of women came down from the flat roofs. Torchlight flared, gold and scarlet, lighting the wine-shops, making blacker the shadows of the alley-mouths. Stark left his beast at a sarai on the edge of the canal. The paddocks were already jammed. Stork recognized the long-legged brutes of the dry-land breed, and as he left a caravan passed him, coming in with a jangling of bronze bangles and a great hissing and stamping in the dust. 
The riders were tall barbarians, Keshi, Stark thought, from the way they braided their tawny hair. They wore plain leather, and their blue-eyed women rode like queens. Valkus was full of them. For days, it seemed, they must have poured in across the Dead Sea bottom from the distant oases and the barren deserts of the back blocks. Brawny warriors of Kesh and Shun, making holiday beside the low canal, where there was more water than any of them had seen in their lives. They were in Valkus, these barbarians, but they were not part of it. Shouldering his way through the streets, Stark got the peculiar flavor of the town that he guessed could never be touched or changed by anything. In a square a girl danced to the music of harp and drum. The air was heavy with the smell of wine and burning pitch and incense. A lithe, swart Valkysian, in his bright gilt and jeweled girdle, leaped out and danced with the girl, his teeth flashing as he whirled and postured. In the end he bore her off, laughing, her black hair hanging down his back. Women looked at Stark, women graceful as cats, bare to the waist, their skirts slit at the sides above the thigh, wearing no ornaments but the tiny golden bells that were the particular property of the low canal towns, so that the air is always filled with their delicate wanton chiming. Valkus had a laughing, wicked soul. Stark had been in many places in his life, but never one before that beat with such a pulse of evil, incredibly ancient, but strong and gay. He found the palace at last, a great rambling structure of quarried stone with doors and shutters of beaten bronze closed against the dust and the incessant wind. He gave his name to the guard and was taken inside, through halls hung with antique tapestries, the flagged floors worn hollow by countless generations of sandaled feet. Again Stark's half-wild senses told him that life within these halls had not been placid. The very stones whispered of age-old violence. The shadows were heavy with the lingering ghosts of passion. He was brought before Delgon, the lord of Volcus, in the big central room that served as his headquarters. Delgon was lean and cat-like, after the fashion of his race. His black hair showed a stippling of silver, and the hard beauty of his face was strongly marked, the lines drawn deep, and all the softness of youth long gone away. He wore a magnificent harness, and his eyes, under fine dark brows, were like drops of hot gold. He looked up as the earthman came in, one swift penetrating glance. Then he said, "'You're Stark.' There was something odd about those yellow eyes, bright and keen as a killer hawk's, yet somehow secret, as though the true thoughts behind them would never show through. Instinctively Stark disliked the man. But he nodded and came up to the council table, turning his attention to the others in the room, a handful of Martians, low canalers, chiefs and fighting men from their ornaments and their proud looks, and several outlanders their conventional garments incongruous in this place. Stark knew them all. Knighton and Walsh of Terra, Themis of Mercury, Arad of Callisto Colony, and Luhar of Venus. Pirates, thieves, renegades, 
and each one an expert in his line. Ashton was right. There was something big, something very big and very ugly, shaping between Valkus and the drylands. But that was only a quick passing thought in Stark's mind. It was on Luhar that his attention centered. Bitter memory and hatred had come to savage life within him as soon as he saw the Venusian. The man was handsome, a cashiered officer of the crack Venusian guards, very slim, very elegant, his pale hair cropped short and curling, his stark tunic fitting him like a second skin. He said, The Aborigine! I thought we had enough barbarians here without sending for more. Stark said nothing. He began to walk toward Luhar. Luhar said sharply, There's no use in getting nasty, Stark. Past scores are past. We're on the same side now. The Earthman spoke then with a peculiar gentleness. We were on the same side once before, against Terro Venus metals, remember? I remember very well. Luhar was speaking now, not to Stark alone, but to everyone in the room. I remember that your innocent barbarian friends had me tied to the block there in the swamps, and that you were watching the whole thing with honest pleasure. If the company men hadn't come along, I'd be screaming there yet. You sold us out, Stark said. You had it coming. He continued to walk toward Luhar. Delgon spoke. He did not raise his voice, yet Stark felt the impact of his command. "'There will be no fighting here,' Delgon said. "'You are both hired mercenaries, and while you take my pay, you will forget your private quarrels. Do you understand?' Luhar nodded and sat down, smiling out of the corner of his mouth at Stark, who stood looking with narrowed eyes at Delgon. He was still half-blind with his anger against Luhar. His hands ached for the kill, but even so he recognized the power in Delgon. A sound shockingly akin to the growl of a beast echoed in his throat. Then, gradually, he relaxed. The man Delgon he would have challenged, but to do so would wreck the mission that he had promised to carry out here for Ashton. He shrugged and joined the others at the table. Walsh of Terra rose abruptly and began to prowl back and forth. "'How much longer do we have to wait?' he demanded. Delgon poured wine into a bronze goblet. "'Don't expect me to know,' he snapped. He shoved the flagon along the table toward Stark. Stark helped himself. The wine was warm and sweet on his tongue. He drank slowly, sitting relaxed and patient, while the others smoked nervously or rose to pace up and down. Stark wondered what or who they were waiting for, but he did not ask. Time went by. Stark raised his head, listening. What's that? Their duller ears had heard nothing, but Delgon rose and flung open the shutters of the window near him. The Martian dawn, brilliant and clear, flooded the dead sea-bottom with harsh light. Beyond the black line of the canal a caravan was coming toward Valkus through the blowing dust. It was no ordinary caravan. 
Warriors rode before and behind, their spearheads blazing at the sunrise. Jeweled trappings on the beasts, a litter with curtains of crimson silk, barbaric splendor. Clear and thin on the air came the wild music of pipes and the deep-throated throbbing of drums. Stark guessed, without being told who it was, that rode out of the desert like a king. Dalgon made a harsh sound in his throat. "'It's Kynon at last,' he said, and swung around from the window. His eyes sparkled with some private amusement. "'Let us go and welcome the giver of life.' Stark went with them out into the crowded streets. A silence had fallen on the town. Valkyrian and Barbarian alike were caught now in a breathless excitement, pressing through the narrow ways flowing toward the canal. Stark found himself beside Delgon in the great square of the slave market, standing on the auction block above the heads of the throng. The stillness, the expectancy of the crowd were uncanny. To the measured thunder of drums and the wild skirling of desert pipes, Kynon of Shun came into Valkus. Straight into the square of the slave market the caravan came, and the people pressed back against the walls to make way for them. Stamping of padded hoofs on the stones, ring and clash of harness, brave glitter of spears, and the great two-handed broadswords of the drylands, with drum-beats to shake the heart, and the savage cry of the pipes to set the blood leaping. Stark could not restrain an appreciative thrill in himself. The advance guard reached the slave block. Then, with deafening abruptness, the drummers crossed their sticks and the pipers ceased, and there was utter silence in the square. It lasted for almost a minute, and then from every barbarian throat the name of Kynon roared out until the stones of the city echoed with it. A man leaped from the back of his mount to the block, standing at its outer edge where all could see his hands flung up. "'I greet you, my brothers!' And the cheering went on. Stark studied Kynon, surprised that he was so young. He had expected a grey-beard prophet. And instead here was a brawny-shouldered man of war standing as tall as himself. Kynon's eyes were a bright, compelling blue, and his face was the face of a young eagle. His voice had deep music in it, the kind of voice that can sway crowds to madness. Stark looked from him to the rapt faces of the people—even the Valkyrians had caught the mood—and thought that Kynon was the most dangerous man he had ever seen. This tawny-haired barbarian in his kilt of bronze-boss leather was already half a god. Kynon shouted to the captain of his warriors, "'Bring the captive and the old man!' Then he turned again to the crowd, urging them to silence. When at last the square was still, his voice rang challengingly across it. "'There are still those who doubt me. Therefore I have come to Valkus, and this day, now, I will show proof that I have not lied.' a roar and a mutter from the crowd. Kynon's men were lifting to the block a tottering ancient so bowed with years that he could barely stand, and a youth of Terran stock. The boy was in chains. 
The old man's eyes burned, and he looked at that boy beside him with a terrible joy. Stark settled down to watch. The litter with the curtains of crimson silk were now beside the block. A girl, a Valkyrian, stood beside it, looking up. It seemed to Stark that her green eyes rested on Kynon with a smoldering anger. He glanced away from the serving girl and saw that the curtains were partly open. A woman lay in the cushions within. He could not see much of her except that her hair was like dark flame and she was smiling, looking at the old man and the naked boy. Then her glance, very dark in the shadows of the litter, shifted away and Stark followed it and saw Delgon. Every muscle of Delgon's body was drawn taut, and he seemed unable to look away from the woman in the litter. Stark smiled very slightly. The outlanders were cynically absorbed in what was going on. The crowd had settled again to that silent, breathless tension. The sun blazed down out of the empty sky. The dust blew and the wind was sharp with the smell of living flesh. The old man reached out and touched the boy's smooth shoulder, and his gums showed bluish as he laughed. Kynon was speaking again. There are those who doubt me, I say, those who scoffed when I said that I possessed the ancient secret of the Ramas of long ago, the secret by which one man's mind may be transferred into another's body. But none of you after today will doubt that I hold that secret. I myself am not a Rama. He glanced down along his powerful frame, half-consciously flexing his muscles, and laughed. Why should I be a Rama? I have no need as yet for the sending on of minds. Answering laughter, half ribbled from the crowd. No, said Kynon, I am not a Rama. I am a man like you. Like you, I have no wish to grow old and in the end to die. He swung abruptly to the old man. You, grandfather, would you not wish to be young again, to ride out to battle to take the woman of your choice? The old man wailed, Yes, yes, and his gaze dwelt hungrily upon the boy. And you shall be. The strength of a god rang in Kynon's voice. He turned again to the crowd and cried out, Four years I suffered in the desert alone, searching for the lost secret of the Ramas. And I found it, my brothers. I hold their ancient power. I alone, in these two hands, I hold it, and with it I shall bring a new era for our dryland races. There will be fighting, yes. There will be bloodshed. But when that is over, and the men of Kesh and Shun are free from their ancient bondage of thirst, and the men of the Low Canals have regained their own, then I shall give new life, unending life, to all who have followed me. The aged and lamed and wounded can choose new bodies from among the captives. There will be no more age, no more sickness, no more death. 
a rippling, shivering sigh from the crowd, eyeballs gleaming in the bitter light, mouths open on the hunger that is nearest to the human soul. Lest anyone still doubt my promise, said Kynon, watch, watch, and I will show you. They watched, not stirring, hardly breathing, they watched. The drums struck up a slow and solemn beat. The captains of the warriors, with an escort of six men, marched to the litter and took from the woman's hands a bundle wrapped in silks. Bearing it as though it were precious beyond belief, he came to the block and lifted it up, and Kynon took it from him. The silken wrappings fluttered loose, fell away, and in Kynon's hands gleamed two crystal crowns and a shining rod. He held them high, the sunlight glancing in cold fire from the crystal. Behold, he said, the crowns of the Ramas. The crowd drew breath then, one long rasping, ah! The solemn drumbeat never faltered. It was as though the pulse of the whole world throbbed within it. Kynon turned. The old man began to tremble. Kynon placed one crown on his wrinkled scalp, and the tottering creature winced as though in pain, but his face was ecstatic. Relentlessly, Kynon crowned with the second circlet the head of the frightened boy. Kneel, he said. They knelt. Standing tall above them, Kynon held the rod in his two hands between the crystal crowns. Light was born in the rod. It was no reflection of the sun. Blue and brilliant, it flashed along the rod and leaped from it to wake an answering brilliance in the crowns, so that the old man and the youth were haloed with a chill, supernatural fire. The drumbeat ceased. The old man cried out, his hands plucked feebly at his head, then went to his breast and clenched there. Quite suddenly he fell forward over his knees. A convulsive tremor shook him. Then he lay still. The boy swayed and then fell forward also with a clashing of chains. The light died out of the crowns. Kynon stood a moment longer, rigid as a statue, holding the rod which still flickered with blue lightning. Then that also died. Kynon lowered the rod. In a ringing voice he cried, Arise, grandfather! The boy stirred. Slowly, very slowly, he rose to his feet. Holding out his hands, he stared at them, and then touched his thighs and his flat belly and the deep curve of his chest. Up the firm young throat the wandering fingers went to the smooth cheeks, to the thick fair hair above the crown. A cry broke from him. With the perfect accent of the dry lands, the earth boy cried in Martian, I am in the youth's body. I am young again. A scream, a wail of ecstasy burst from the crowd. It swayed like a great beast, white faces turned upward. 
the boy fell down and embraced Kynon's knees. Eric John Stark found that he himself was trembling slightly. He glanced at Dalgon and the outlanders. The Valkyrian wore a look of intense satisfaction under his mask of awe. The others were almost as rapt and open-mouthed as the crowd. Stark turned his head slightly and looked down at the litter. One white hand was already drawing the curtains, so that the scarlet silk appeared to shake with silent laughter. The serving-girl beside it had not moved. Still she looked up at Kynon, and there was nothing in her eyes but hate. After that there was bedlam, the rush and trample of the crowd, the beating of drums, the screaming of pipes, deafening uproar. The crowns and the crystal rod were wrapped again and taken away. Kynon raised up the boy and struck off the chains of captivity. He mounted with the boy beside him. Delgon walked before him through the streets, and so did the outlanders. The body of the old man was disregarded except by some of Kynon's barbarians, who wrapped it in a white cloth and took it away. Kynon of Shun came in triumph to Delgon's palace. Standing beside the litter, he gave his hand to the woman, who stepped out and walked beside him through the bronze door. The women of Shun are tall and strong, bred to stand beside their man in war as well as love, and this red-haired daughter of the dry lands was enough to stop a man's heart with her proud step and her white shoulders and her eyes that were the color of smoke. Stark's gaze followed her from a distance. Presently in the council room were gathered Delgon and the outlanders, Kynon and his bright-haired queen, and no other Martians but those three. Kynon sprawled out in the high seat at the head of the table. His face was beaming. He wiped the sweat off it, and then filled a goblet with wine, looking around the room with his blue eyes. "'Fill up, gentlemen, I give you a toast.' He lifted the goblet. Here's to the secret of the Ramas and the gift of life. Stark put down his goblet, still empty. He stared directly at Kynon. You have no secret, said Stark deliberately. Kynon sat perfectly still, except that very slowly he put his own goblet down. Nobody else moved. Stark's voice sounded loud in the stillness. "'Furthermore,' he said, "'that demonstration in the square was a lie from beginning to end.'" End of Part 2